that you open up your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. That's on page 1049 if you're using a pew Bible and are unfamiliar with uh, where John is. John, chapter 1. And in a few minutes, we're going to be reading verses 14 to 18. Some of you may know that uh, this summer, uh, both of my parents retired from their careers and moved out here uh, from Las Vegas, where they had spent the last uh, 30 years. That's where I grew up. Um, and uh, moved out here. Now they live like seven minutes from our house. And uh, I have to say, it's awesome having them out here. And not just because of the free babysitting, though that's nice. And, and not just because my mom cooks ridiculous quantities of food, which is awesome. Uh, and not just because my dad is around and he actually knows how to, you know, fix things in the house, unlike, you know, me, forget that. So it's, it's just great. But, you know, the, the great thing having them around is just that they're around and you can relate to them in person. You know, we, we lived away for like 20 years and, um, you know, it's tough having a long distance relationship. Uh, some of us have tried to do that in different ways. You know, you try to do the phone call thing, but I don't know, you know, it's the phone, and it's, it, it, it's not the best way to communicate. Um, you, you know, you can't tell what the person is expressing. You don't see their face. Uh, I'm, I'm just not a phone call person. Some people get on the phone and just, da, 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 but not me. I'm like, I don't know what to say. Um, I'm good in person, but not on the phone so much. And then, uh, you know, along came email and texting, and that's kind of more convenient because you can shoot off an email or text whenever and, and answer it whenever, but still, it's just words on a screen. It's so impersonal. And then probably the best um, development was Skype, you know, video Skype, because at least you can see the people, you can see their faces, you can talk to each other with the little camera over the internet. Uh, But even then, you're just seeing their face on the screen. You're not interacting, you're not doing things together. I mean, so much of knowing each other is, is doing things together and experiencing life together. And so it's great having them here in person. You, you can sort of keep a, a relationship kind of in stasis long distance, but you can't really develop it and enjoy a life together long distance because, you know, God made us flesh and blood. That's what it means to be part of what it means to be a human being is that we're in flesh. We have bodies. We're not uh, disembodied minds, you know, contrary to the, the hopes and dreams of transhumanism. You know, we, we will not someday transcend our bodies. You know, to be human is to be enfleshed. And God created us so that we, we grow in relationships with each other and know each other person to person. That's how we were meant to be in community. And so think of the extent of God's love for us, that God would love us so much that he would so desire to make himself known to his people that God took on flesh, not sending an email, not shooting a text, not a Facebook post on my wall, but God became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could know him. Look at John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, 
He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So this morning, we're finishing the first 18 verses of John. We've been here the last three weeks. And uh, the first 18 verses of John are often called the prologue to John. And this is where John sets out a lot of the theological themes that he's going to develop throughout the rest of the gospel. This is sort of where he sets the table uh, for the rest of the feast of his gospel for us. And uh, if you just, just kind of walk us through that again, remember the first Sunday we studied verses 1 to 5, and that's where we, we begin with Jesus called the Word before time, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. We have Jesus in the highest possible sense, in, you know, very much with God, very much being God from eternity past. It's kind of the, the top of Mount Everest, ontologically speaking. It's, it's the highest place that any being could be is to be with God and to be was God. And then we saw last Sunday in verses 6 to 13 that Jesus didn't just stay there in God's presence, but that he shined forth like a light, that, that he came into our world, that he came to be with us and among us. And then this Sunday in verses 14 to 18, we see the extent to which he came to be among us. We, we see the the level to which he was willing to come, that God the Son was willing to come to reveal himself to us, that he was willing to become flesh. Again, look at verse 14. These are amazing words. The word became flesh. You, know, you, you just got to marinate in that for a minute. You just got to sit and, and think about that. The word became flesh. The word who was with God and was God, God himself, became, didn't just sort of look like or take on, but he actually became flesh. You know, it doesn't just say that the word became a human being, which he did, but, but it's, it's something more than that. It's not even the word had a body, which he did, but it's, you know, there's a, in, there's a word that's chosen here. The word became flesh. Flesh is so tangible and gritty. What do you think of when you think of flesh? You think of bone, tendons, blood, tissue, hair follicles, sweat glands. You think of marrow. You think of organs. You know, when I think of flesh, I think of eating, drinking, sleeping. I think of laughing, crying. I I think of being born. Think of dying and suffering. You know, flesh, like, you know, what we have. Not, not just some disembodied, ethereal idea somewhere, but he, he became one of us. He took on flesh. It's a really incredible concept that God would love us so much and so desire to be among us and to make us known that he would actually come and be with us in flesh. And and it's not just like he, he sort of looked like flesh, but he became flesh so that from now until forever, God is in flesh. Think about that. Jesus isn't ever gonna become unflesh. God has forever taken himself upon us upon himself it's astounding to think how much god has drawn close to us how much closer could he come 
than to become flesh. This is the great doctrine of the incarnation. It's one of the great mysteries. We have the Trinity in verse 1. Now in verse 14, we have the incarnation. It's from the Latin term in, which means in. And uh, uh, then the Latin word for flesh, caros, carnus, it, in the flesh. And so we have this doctrine that as the church wrestled with who God was, as the church tried to get its head around uh, rather who Jesus was, they said, this is God, but he's also flesh and blood. We ate with him, we drank with him, we saw him bleed, we saw him die, we touched his wounds. This is God in the flesh. If you look at your uh, sermon notes, you find in your bulletin this little insert. On the back, you'll see the Nicene Creed. Uh, we studied this a couple weeks ago, but I just thought it'd be interesting to look at it again. Here's one of the early creeds of the church from the fourth, early 4th fourth century AD as the church was trying to summarize in writing what it had believed from the time of the apostles and, and try to put it down. And, and we looked at this because it, it so clearly articulates the divinity of Christ, but it also articulates the humanity of Christ. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And then here we go. Here's the divinity. In one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds. In the beginning was the word, right? God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He was God. Begotten, not made. He was with God. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. There's John 1, 1 to 5 in that little paragraph. But it doesn't just stop there. Who for us and our salvation came down from heaven. There's John 1, 6 to 13. And then verse 14. Was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He was suffered and buried. There's the flesh. It's such an incredible mystery, the incarnation. The incarnation has always um, been a stumbling block for people of various degrees and for various reasons. You know, you think about in the first century, the idea of the incarnation, how difficult that would have been for a first century Jewish person who had such a high view of God as creator. You know, in, in Old Testament thought, there's the creator and there's the creation, and the two are not to be blurred. You know, that's what pagan idol worshipers do. They, they confuse the creation and the creator. They think the son is a God, and the Bible's very clear. God made the world, and this is the world, and the two are not mixed up. So then to say that God became a man would have been kind of crazy talk for a good, faithful, Old Testament Jewish person. And you think about that. What do you mean God became flesh? In fact, later on in John, we're actually going to get to a passage where uh, Jesus' hearers are about to stone him to death. They get so angry. And so Jesus, you know, calls them out. And he says, well, what are you going to stone me for? for? For which of the miracles? I did a bunch of miracles. Are you stoning me for the miracles I did? They're like, we're not stoning you for the miracles. We're going to stone you because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That just does not make sense. That's blasphemy. So the incarnation would have been blasphemy to the Jews in Jesus' day. It would have been foolishness to the Greeks in Jesus' day. You know, Greek thought very often uh, sort of denigrated the physical world and elevated the world of ideas and the world of 
of uh, thought and in the realm of speculation. You, you know, there's the ideal world and there's the physical world, which is sort of a shadow of the ideal world. So, so the idea that the word, you know, the principle, the organizing principle of reality in, in Greek thought would become flesh, not just look like us or kind of appear among us, but actually become flesh. Like, no, that's not. You, you go up, you don't go down. That doesn't make sense. So it would have been foolishness to the Greeks. The incarnation, uh, even today, is um, it's, it's illogical to the modern rationalist. You know, the modern rationalist, the philosophical person says, this doesn't make any sense. How can that which is eternal become bound in time? How can that which is God become part of the creation. This doesn't make logical sense from a philosophical standpoint. But it's not just hard for the modern rationalist. I think it's hard for the postmodern mystic. You know, as, as we've moved from the 20th century to the 21st century and the pendulum has swung from rationalism to mysticism, from, uh, from realism to romanticism. You know, that pendulum is always swinging back and forth through the ages. And as, as we've become a culture with a mood that's more mystical, where people today, you know, everyone says, well, I'm spiritual. You know, that's not the way people talked 50 years ago. Things have changed in the way we conceive of ourselves. And people are open to the spiritual and the supernatural today broadly defined. And so you'd think, well, this is a time people would be open to Jesus. Well, not really. Because we're not saying that the word is in everyone and the word is a spark within you. And if you just listen to the voice in your own soul, you'll hear the spark of the word true. Because we're all spiritual. No, no, no. It's the word became flesh. Like one person named Jesus. And so if you want to be spiritual, if you want to get in touch with the divine, you have to come to this one guy named Jesus who became flesh. So the incarnation is always problematic in all ages for for different reasons. For, For us who love him, it is a precious truth to think that God loved us so much that he came that close. He took on our flesh to be with us. You see, some people get hung up with the word became flesh, but as believers, we said, no, 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 look what follows. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He came and lived here. He dwelt with us. God wanted to be with us and near us for his, for his people's sake. We have seen his glory, verse 14, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is a really cool verse because uh, in order to explain how close God is getting to us in becoming flesh and dwelling among us, I think what John is doing is he's drawing on some really neat Old Testament imagery I'd like to point out to you. Um, you, you see that word he made his dwelling among us? That, that Greek word really carries the idea of, of dwelling, especially in a tent. So it's like he camped among us in a tent. Like, why would, you know, there's a lot of words for living among us, but John picked a special word here that means to tent. And I think what he's doing is he's alluding back to the Old Testament where God dwelt in a tent among the Israelites. Check this out. This is so cool. Put a a little bookmark here in John and go back to Exodus chapter 33. It's on page 87 in the Pew Bible. 
And I, I think Exodus 33 and 34 is uh, the background for these verses in a lot of ways. So here's the story of Moses and how Moses used to connect with God and talk to God when God dwelt among the Israelites. Exodus 33, verse 7, page 87. It says, now, verse 7, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud, the the glorious presence of God, that fiery pillar of God's shining glory would come down and stay at the entrance of the tent while the Lord spoke with Moses. And whenever people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshiped each at the entrance of his tent. And so now going back to John, I I think that's the the imagery upon which John is drawing. Just as God came down and tented among the Israelites, so in Jesus God has come to dwell among his people and tent in the flesh. Then get this line, we have seen his glory. I again think that's an echo back to Exodus. Just as the glory came down and the people saw it, so now we have seen the glory of God perfectly displayed in Jesus. The glory of the one and only who has come from the Father. And then look at that last line in verse 14. Full of grace and truth. I think that's also an echo from Exodus. Because in Exodus 34, the very next chapter, God reveals his glory to Moses. And he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, abounding in love and faithfulness. Those words, love and faithfulness, in Hebrew could also be translated grace and truth. Faithfulness is like truth. You could translate that word either way. So I, I think what's happening is that John is, is just drawing upon all this Exodus imagery. And so when he says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, he's saying that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, who is abounding in love and faithfulness, again dwelling on earth among his people in Jesus, tenting among us. An awesome God that he would love us so much would so desire for his people to know him that he would take on flesh the way that we know each other. You know, the the most normal way that human beings know and are in relationship with each other is in flesh to each other, person to person, face to face. And that God became flesh and dwelt among us. The very God of the Old Testament, the creator God, Yahweh, has become a person named Jesus and dwelt among us. And so, Jesus is the greatest revelation of God. There is nothing higher. If you want to know who God is, the clearest, best, ultimate way to know who God is is to look at Jesus. To see Jesus is to see God. All other revelations of God prior to Jesus were simply warm-ups. They were warm-up acts. They were all pointing toward Christ. But with the coming of Jesus, we now have God in the flesh. If you want to know Jesus, you, uh, God, you have to know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you can't know God. It's that specific because God has revealed himself in Jesus. And if you reject the Son, you reject the Father. If you don't know the Son, you can't know the Father. And if you know the Son, you have the Father, because God has shown himself in the person of Christ. And I think that's what verses 15 to 18 are all about, if we just sort of finish out this little section. In verses 15 to 18, 
what, what John is sort of pointing out is that, that Jesus is the supreme revelation, that he's the highest revelation. There's nothing better than him. Uh, he's better. Jesus is superior to the revelation we had through John the Baptist. Look at verse 15. John, talking about John the Baptist now, not John the guy who wrote this gospel. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. All right, does that, you get that? It's kind of a little bit confusing. He who comes after me, because remember John the Baptist appeared first and then Jesus appeared. So he who comes after me surpasses me because he was before me. So John's just kind of doing a play on this idea of, of order. That like, you know, we get this, right? If you're first, you're better. You know, first is better, second is not as good, right? You want to be the first one in lunch line. That's the best. You know, the, the best people get on the plane first because they're first class, you know, and, and the rest of us, you know, losers, we get on second. And so, so it's this basic human idea that, that first is better. You know, the firstborn has a certain place. I mean, it's all that stuff. And so John's like, like, look, I'm first and Jesus came second, but don't think that means I'm better than him because he was actually before me. You know, the word was in the beginning with God. And so, so what John is saying is that Jesus is a greater revelation than I am. And you could even say then that Jesus is a greater revelation than all the Old Testament prophets because all the Old Testament prophets culminate in John the Baptist. He's the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And so if Jesus is better than him, if he's superior in revelation to him, then he's superior to everybody because he was before them all. So all of God's revelation through the prophets all through the Old Testament has now been surpassed in Christ. You get that in, uh, if you look at your sermon notes again, look on the front. There at the top, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And here's this, through whom he made the universe. So he was before them. So God has given his superior and perfect revelation through Jesus, even more superior than John the Baptist, even more superior than the Old Testament prophets. Verses uh, 16 and 17, even more superior than Moses. And Moses, he's the man. Moses is the high watermark for God revealing himself to the world. Who knew God like Moses? Moses talked to him face to face. Moses got the law. Moses was the high watermark for people knowing God up to this point. And yet John says Jesus is better than Moses. Look at verse 16 and 17. From the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So you see there's a comparison here between Moses and Jesus, and Jesus is superior. It says there, verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we've received one blessing after another. A, a better way to translate that would be, and probably in some different translations, it says from the fullness of his grace, we have received grace upon grace. Maybe you have a Bible that's translated that way. I think it's a better translation. But it's even, not, it's even more than just grace upon grace. If, if I can just kind of get Greeky here for a little bit. The Greek word for upon is actually most commonly translated instead of or in place of. 
So, so probably a better way to translate it, if you can track with me here, is from the fullness of his grace, we've received one grace instead of another grace, in place of another grace. So what I think he's saying is, God has shown so much grace through the Old Testament, but now we've received a grace that far surpasses it, that's one grace above and beyond and replacing all those other graces. And I think that's borne out by verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, that was awesome, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses gave you the Ten Commandments and the law, but Jesus gives us God himself, not just God's law. He is grace and truth. He's God in the flesh. Right before John, we spent the last year studying Deuteronomy. It was awesome. I love Deuteronomy. I learned so much. But brothers and sisters, that was just leading us to Christ. And here in John, we have Christ himself. It, it, it is the pinnacle of God's revelation to us. And so if you have Jesus, you have the highest most clear, most perfect revelation of God's very heart to us. If you want to know anything about God and you want to see it most clearly, look at Jesus. Um, let's, let's give a specific example because it's easy to kind of talk about this in the abstract. Um, so let's pick an example. Let's, let's think of a characteristic of God that you can see in different ways through God's revelation but is most clearly seen in Jesus. Let's, um, and the one I'd like to talk about is grace. Think about grace. I mean, it's here in the passage. Let's just go with it. You know, it's full of grace. What, what is grace? I mean, it's kind of a churchy word. You know, amazing grace. And we talk, well, what's grace? I mean, really. The basic idea of grace is a gift. It's something you get that you didn't earn, you don't deserve. There's no reason you should have it. It's just a, it's a free gift, you know. Uh, it's not owed to you. It's, it's, and in fact, oftentimes, grace is something you get when you deserve the opposite. You know, you deserve bad, but you get good. That's grace. I had, a, I had an experience of receiving grace about a month ago. Uh, I, was, um, I, I was shown some really nice grace from people in this church. I deserved bad, but I got good. I, uh, I had scheduled to do an infant dedication on a Saturday with the family in this church. And they were going to bring their kid here at 1 o'clock, and I was going to come. It was sort of a private family infant dedication. We do that sometimes. It was, it was fine. And so uh, we confirmed it. We put it in my schedule. My secretary emailed me to confirm it. And so Saturday came around, and it was like one of those crazy fall Saturdays in our house where it's like, you know, 8 a.m. soccer game, 9 a.m. soccer game, you know, 10 a.m. get the kid to... Coat, uh, you know, ref soccer, here, there. And, and I just was like, the day started and we just launched into the day and I didn't sit down at the beginning of my day and just look through my schedule and say, oh yeah, that's right, I have a one, you can probably see where this is going, can't you? A, a, a 1 p.m. infant dedication for the baby. Like, oh my goodness. And so uh, one o'clock was tennis. So I got my seven-year-old to tennis and I'm like, okay, he's gonna go tennis. I'm gonna sit on the exercise bike for a little bit and I start doing the exercise bike at the Y and I get this phone call at like 105 from my daughter. And she's like, Dad, uh, I just got a call. There's some people at the church. They're expecting you for, it's like something about a baby. And I was like, oh, no. So I was like, you know, the adrenaline was right in there. And so I put the phone down, flew home, calling my wife. You got to pick up our son at tennis. I'm not going to, just going to leave him there. You're going to have to get him. And uh, like shower, dress, tie, drive over, minding the speed limit. Um, I waltz in at 145. I mean, what a schlep. 
It's an infant dedication. I mean, this is like bad pastor. Like 145, I'm like, ugh. If, if someone was 45 minutes late to some special event for me, like it, you know, that's the kind of thing that just drives me into orbit. You know, I, I just, like, I want to think, don't waste people's time. It's New England. You can take my money, you can give me a really miserable long winter, but don't waste my time. Like, you don't waste time in New England. And I totally wasted 45 minutes of this special time. And I walk in the door expecting scowls, and it was all smiles. They're like, we're so glad you're here. You know? Maybe they were faking it. <laughs> but I take things at face value. I was like, I'm really sorry. I really have no good excuse. And they were just like, it's okay. This is cool. This is great. Just enjoying the new church. So we did the dedication. And then after the dedication, the dad, he goes, this is for you. And he hands me a check. You know? I'm like, what? I, you know, it's, you get, if you're a pastor, people typically give you checks for weddings or funerals. It's just what people do. And uh, I've never had one for an infant dedication, I don't think. But anyway, I was like, dude, I, I don't, this is not for money. That's not why I'm doing this. And I certainly don't deserve it after my, my poor showing today. He's like, just take it. I want you to take it. I was like, no, no, no. And he said, look, if you really you know, don't want it, just put it in the offering plate and you can give it to the church. And you can, you know, if you don't want to cash it. Well, I did cash it. <laughs> because it's grace. <laughs> it's grace. Grace is not only giving a gift, you've got to be able to receive a gift. So for theological reasons, I, I took the check. <laughs> That's grace. I deserved scowls. I deserve to have church people fed up with me. I deserve to have, you know, that's the kind of thing where people are like, I can't believe that. Instead, I got kindness and understanding and forgiveness and, and money. And it was like, that's grace. You know, and this is what we need. Because we look at our, our track record as human beings with God, and it's even worse. And so we need a God of grace if we have any hope, a God of grace. So is God of God of grace? How do we know that? How do you know what God is like? How do we know we're not just saying things that make us feel good? Gee, I wish God was a God of grace. All right, let's just all believe that. Like, how do you know he's a God of grace? Well, look at creation. Look at the world he made. He's revealed himself in creation. You know, no matter how bad life gets, you get up every day and there's sunshine and there's beautiful world around us. Really bad people can enjoy the sunrise and can enjoy the rain. You know, the creation is full of grace. We don't deserve it, but we're here. But it's even more clear than that. If you go to the Old Testament, God's grace is even more clear than in creation. Because there in the Old Testament, we see God chose a specific people, the Israelites. He made them his people. He brought them through the wilderness. He gave them the promised land. He gave them victory over the enemies. Why? Because they deserved it? No. This, this was a stubborn and wicked people. The Israelites were just as much idolatrous as the Egyptians. There's really no difference. And in fact, you look at the Old Testament. Here's the Old Testament in a in a summary: (laughs) is Israel continues to be unfaithful again and again and again, and God continues to be gracious and merciful and patient. And even when He judges them, He's shooting in promises of a coming future restoration under the Messiah. And so, even in judgment. There's grace and promise that God is going to do something new with the coming of Jesus. 
God is a God of grace. We see it. Like if you think God, if you question if God's a God of grace, read the Old Testament. It's just oozing with God's grace toward Israel and his kindness. But if it's still not clear, then go to the New Testament and look at the highest picture of grace that there can be or ever would be that God would come to sinners like us, that he would take on our flesh, not just so that we could know him, but so that we could, he could go die for us on the cross. That on the cross, in his body, in his flesh, he absorbed the wrath of God and the judgment and the curse of God that we deserve. You know, if, is there any higher grace than that? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? This is it. This is the pinnacle. If you can't look at the cross and see a God of grace, then, then may God help you. Because this is God in the flesh, in his grace. So there's no one like Jesus. He alone is God in the flesh. There is no other. If you have Christ, you have God. If you do not have Jesus, you cannot have God. Not you, no, you don't. You cannot because he is God in every way but in flesh for us. As it says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, literally, better translation, in the Father's bosom. It's a much more intimate word than just, not like he's at his side, but he's in his bosom. He who is at the Father's bosom has made him known. God the one and only has made God the Father known. And so it's through Christ that we see the Father. Just look at John 14. Turn in your Bibles to John 14. Just close with this little verse. This amazing announcement from Jesus in John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, there it is, you would know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him. You've seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In Jesus, we have God in the flesh. What great love God has shown to us. And so this Christmas, which is going to start really, I can't believe Thanksgiving is this week. Wow, Christmas is coming soon. And as the world gets all wound up about shopping and all this stuff and just all the craziness of Christmas, just think about it. What is Christmas about? It's about God becoming flesh. And may we celebrate Christmas not just by running around trying to get presents and get to parties and decorate the house, but may we as Christians celebrate Christmas by, by pausing long enough to savor and treasure a God who became flesh to know us and to save us. Here's a Christmas challenge. Read through the Gospel of John between now and Christmas. 21 chapters. It's like an advent calendar almost. You can do a chapter a day. And just read through John. And, you know, it's Thanksgiving, so you can get a head start for those of us who get behind on things. 
Just every day, just read a chapter of John. And do it because you want to know Jesus. The Bible is, as one Puritan said, the swaddling clothes that wrap up the baby Jesus. And as you open the gospel and as you read through the power of the Holy Spirit, may you meet Christ and know him. And may love for Christ grow in your hearts this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you because you are the word who was in the beginning, but you're also the word who became flesh. Thank you for loving us so much that you took on flesh and that you bore our sins on the cross. God, I pray that you would ignite love for you in our hearts. I pray for those of us who've never known you, never loved you, that this Christmas, this time of year, we would find for the first time ever a pilot light of love for Christ lit in our souls. And Lord, I pray for those of us, Jesus, who do know you, would you just help us to slow down and wait upon you at your feet and think about you and savor you. Lord, forgive us for the way we go days and weeks without praying and for how little we read your word and how, how, how low the pilot light has burned. Lord, would you reignite our desire for you? Would you help us to, to sit back and, and just hold up the gift of Christ and look at it like, like little kids on Christmas morning just looking at those gifts? Lord, help us just to see Christ and to treasure him above all else. Lord, thank you that you became flesh, that you went all the way to make yourself known to us. We love you, Jesus, and we ask all these things because you died for us. Amen.